a few years ago, he had a thing up there with what was the most funniest for Americans. So I looked at it and I thought, I don't know what this says about Americans either, because uh, <laughs> it doesn't on the surface look like it should be funny. OK, so here it is. A man and a friend are playing golf one day at their local golf course. Humor and laughter are essential to our relationships, conversations, career, sales, marketing, consumption behavior, everything. But what happens when you're just not a natural at it? Today I'm speaking with Professor Janet Gibson, who literally wrote the book on the psychology of humor to find out more about why we laugh, what are the functions and impact of humor, and some steps that I could take to improve it. What I discovered, especially towards the end of our chat, changed the way I approach conversations. For your convenience, I went ahead and timestamped all the key questions, so if you want to skip ahead to something specific, you have the option to do so. Otherwise, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm Peter Marin. Welcome to Questioning the Obvious. How does one arrive at the psychology of humor? So I came to the field about five years ago uh, through teaching a course. At Grinnell, we have a first year seminar that students take to practice their skills in reading and writing at the college level. And I had taught this course for maybe six times before this, and uh, I've been teaching for 25 years. So I was looking for something new and I wanted something that the students knew about, but maybe they've never had a psychology class. So I started doing uh, some research in the uh, journals, looking to see what was written about the psychology of humor. And there was actually quite a bit. So uh, I taught the course and then based on that, I was asked by my college to write a paper on uh, humor as a character strength. And this was published in the conversation. A Grinnell alum saw it who worked in the publishing business and he called me and said, why don't you write a textbook on the psychology of humor? So I did. And in order to do that, I had to read a lot of papers and on a lot of topics. And uh, now they call me an expert on the psychology of humor. I always liked humor, but when I went to school back in the 70s, they did not take humor very seriously. <laughs> and it was not something that comes up in a class. And even today, you rarely find humor in any of the textbooks. It's a behavior we all experience, but it just was never taken seriously. So mm. it was something that I always liked. Uh, I came across riddling and metaphors in a psychology of language class. So I kind of liked that topic, but I just never explored it. And I thought it was only personality or Freudian psychology that studied humor. But actually, all the modern areas of psychology are studying humor for itself or to use humor as a way to understand psychology. So it's, it's a very active and vibrant field. Let's go into it then. Why do we laugh? Is there a clear answer on that? I think we laugh because we're playing. 
And when we're playing, we're having fun and we enjoy it. And uh, researchers observe, for example, um, lots of animals play. And some animals seem to laugh just like humans do when they're having fun. These would be the orangutans, the bonobos, the cats, chimpanzees, gorillas, but even rats will emit a sound when they're being tickled. So these animals appear to laugh when they are playing. And the uh, psychologists say that laughter is a signal that we are playing and not actually being aggressive. So we can play chase and we can wrestle and we can tickle each other as we are playing. This is not an aggressive act that is going to require an aggressive response. We tend to laugh when we play also because the network of the brain is organized so that when we are experiencing uh, positive emotions, there is activation being sent to the motor areas that control our facial muscles. So we are laughing because of the activation of having fun. And when we laugh, it also sends the activation backwards and causes us to experience the emotions of having fun. Uh, you will even sometimes when you hear laughter, it will activate the motor cortex first and then you feel happiness afterwards. So there is a very strong network hardwired into the brain. Uh, psychologists say that play is a biological drive. So everybody plays, all humans at least play, and that uh, all humans will laugh as long as something isn't uh, preventing that laughter, like a negative emotion. If you don't want to play and someone tries to play with you, you don't have to laugh. You could be annoyed and get mad. If we delve a little bit more into the actual mechanics of laughter and the physiology behind. Yeah. So like through fMRI studies and things like that, brain imaging studies, we can see sort of how the networks are in the brain. And it turns out that uh, laughter is connected to the front, to the back, to the sides, so that when you're laughing, you're actually activating many areas of the brain. So the first thing is you're strengthening connections when you activate them. So laughter is good for all areas of the brain, for the part that controls your working memory, and your thinking, flexible thinking, reasoning, um, the meaning of things, right? When you're focusing on what does the my world mean about me, right? That is getting activated when you laugh. Also, your emotion sides for like empathy and understanding other people is also activated. And you'll see this a lot in humor, that a lot of it has to do with what other people are thinking. So you get these areas being um, activated for social interaction, but it also activates areas in the limbic system that control body functions. So you have things like muscle tension is being relaxed when you laugh. So it's releasing tension that the body might be feeling. First you tense up or you laugh, but mm. then you relax afterwards. Um, it increases the heart rate and your lungs are working when you laugh. And so you get more oxygen flowing, oxygen for the brain to use, as well as oxygen for the whole body. So your muscles are getting oxygen and you feel better when you have a good source of oxygen. It also releases, according to the researchers, um, it controls areas that release stress hormones. And when you're hit with a threat, whether it's biological or psychological, uh, these hormones are released and they are what give adrenaline and uh, help the body fight so you can handle the stress. 
But over time, that can wear the heart system. It can wear your immune system. And what laughter seems to do is it depresses that stress hormone level just a little bit so that you are more resilient and you can handle the stress that's going to possibly happen for months, say a global pandemic. If you can keep laughing, what you're doing is you're keeping your body's response system from going into overdrive, giving your body more ability to fight the stress over time. Uh, last but not least, it also has been known to help with your pain tolerance. So a study might do something like this, where participants watch a video and the video either makes you laugh or it doesn't. If you watch the video that makes you laugh and then you are asked to put your hand into a bucket of ice, you will keep your hand in the bucket longer. You're tolerating the pain longer. And this could be a release of endorphins are happening because you are laughing. So it's not just a stress response being controlled, but also sort of, I don't even feel the stress at the moment. Eventually they do. Everybody has to take their hand out of a bucket of ice unless you don't feel uh, pain. So this, this leads a little bit into like the psychological benefits because endorphins tend to help us feel better. And so mm. there are there's psychological pain of things like just being frustrated. So they send people in to watch videos. One's a comedy, one is not. And then they come out and they're asked to do a boring task or a task that really has no solution. So it's very frustrating. It's like a crossword puzzle. It doesn't have an answer. And you get frustrated. Well, those who laughed are willing to stick with it and keep trying it. And they rate the task is not so boring. And people say that could be because of the endorphins. You're willing to tolerate a boring task or a difficult task a little bit longer if you have recently been laughing. So that's something that comes in handy for students because they're often asked to do things that they don't want to do. And you're just a little more willing to do it if you do it after you had some laughs with friends, maybe. Uh, laughter helps because it helps us like with the positive, um, the lighter side. So when you make a mistake and you're instead of being embarrassed, you laugh about it and maybe your friends are with you. And so they laugh with you and then you don't feel like withdrawing. Instead, you feel like staying with them and keeping to go. So all the social support, there's a lot of research that having friends helps you, helps your immune system, helps you stay healthy mm. physically. But of course, it also helps psychologically, too. So laughing is a social tool that we use with people to sort to say, hey, I like you. I like what you just said. Um, I share your outlook. Let's stay and be friends. And that is both good physically and psychologically. I like that. The social tool. Um, it's external. That's its, its big right. value, I think, socially. You can't really see the minds of other people, but you can see when they're laughing. And that just True. helps a great deal to know what my friends are thinking or what my, uh, should I continue or should I stop? I was wondering, you know, the other day, I realized that for a dog or for a different animal, the expression of laughter must be fairly close to the expression of threat in humans because we're showing teeth, right? It's, it's, a, it's an unusual way of displaying playfulness. Do you know how the, 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 the human interpretation of, of laughter came about? Um, 
how much of it is evolution, how much of it is learned by culture is debatable. Um, and oftentimes you can't tell if a person is crying or laughing or if they mm. are angry or not. We need a lot of clues to help us know for sure. But usually with laughter, it isn't just the baring of teeth. There is an upward trend to the muscles towards the eyes. Um, there's something called the Duchenne smile where you crinkle your uh, skin that is near the eyes. Your eyes narrow a bit in laughter. With aggression, you usually get bigger, right? You try to say, I'm dominant and I'm going to kill you. Um, but with laughter, it's more of uh, inviting a relaxing type of a facial expression. And uh, people who study the laughter and who study aggression, they have ways of telling from a photograph, you know, whether a person is smiling because they're happy, whether they are smiling because they're embarrassed, whether they are smiling because they have a great a thought of killing you, right? So right before aggression, maybe I've got a nasty idea, like the Grinch who stole, you know, who stole mm. Christmas. He has a big, nasty grin, but it's a different kind of grin. And the teeth, a little bit different, lips a little bit different. Everything is different. And humans have a, a strong, I don't know about the other species, but I know humans have a strong area of the uh, of the brain devoted to just face recognition and studying the face. And humans give a lot of attention to the face when we see each other. And those fine differences between whether your lips are curling up are actually being uh, processed. And you don't maybe have any awareness of this, but something tells you this is a threat. This mm. is a, um, a, a friendly smile. If you want a story, one time I went to Sweden and uh, I do not speak Swedish and I don't know the Swedish culture very well. But I had a girlfriend from graduate school who was from Sweden and she was bilingual and she was my tour guide. And we're going around at town. She gets into what looked to me like a friendly conversation between two people, because when I looked at both of their faces, I saw only smiles. Mm -hmm. Lots of owls in the Swedish intonation. And I didn't see anything that looked like what I would think of as aggression. No waving of the arms because it isn't just the face. Right. With laughter, mm. we move our shoulders and our head with aggression. We move our arms more. And uh, after the conversation was over, she told me that they were disagreeing and that the other person was mad at her. <laughs> I was completely clueless. Now, I think I can read faces and I saw teeth and I saw upper lips and all of that. But cultural norms sort of tell you how people in your surrounding environment are conveying emotions. Mm. And that helps a lot, too. And I think that would be true with the primates, that there is a... Um, a, a learning, shared learning knowledge of what is aggressive, whether it's standing up, standing down, what what is submission, what is uh, anger, what is madness, annoyance, all the different shades of emotions. That's really interesting. For that story to work, laughter can't be just a universal signaling between humans. It, it must have a pronounced cultural element that differs across segments of the population. And and clearly we're all aware of this because a, a joke that lands well here might cause a lot of offense somewhere else. So I'm thinking, how does that work within the context of, of laughter and, and of humor in general? On one hand, it's all about communicating and on another, 
it's communicating, but within a very confined set of parameters. Everybody laughs in their own way, right? You have some people whose laugh mm. is going up, some people whose laugh is going down. Some just sounds like ha ha, and other people sounds like he he ho ho ha, you know. So that it really varies across people. And usually, maybe at first, you're not sure what you're hearing, but mm. then through exposure, you learn this is how the person is, is expressing it. And your culture, personality, your upbringing, what is appropriate or not. So maybe. Maybe you just smile instead of laughing. We have some control over our laugh, uh, but not complete control. And so there are things like I can keep my teeth from showing by simply closing my lips. But uh, I can also maybe first show my teeth and then say, oops, I shouldn't do that. You learn it. You practice it. Uh, a lot of this is uh, also using our reward pathways in the brain. And so I think it gets re uh, reinforced and punished. And if you do something wrong, you don't do it anymore. And it's like an accent. People just pick it up from exposure with each other. And uh, you don't have to learn to laugh, but you maybe you learn how and when and why and whether or not people are faking it or being genuine um, mm. from habits and uh, what it is you're talking about. And, you know, any one joke can elicit 15 different responses. Some people are laughing hysterically. Some people are mad. I don't like that joke. And other people are clueless. I don't get it. Right. You can mm. get the whole range of responses to any single joke, even if someone says this is the funniest joke in the world. Some people joke, I don't get it or it's not funny for me. Um, it's very complicated. And of course, that's what psychology is trying to study. Why is it so complicated? What's going on? How much of it is cognition? How much of it is social? How much of it is emotional? How much of it is biological? And uh, does, mm. it, does it depend what the age of the person is? So what are kids doing? What are older kids doing? What are adults doing? What are senior citizens doing? So they study all these things. And, you know, there are universals there in that everybody is laughing but not exactly the same way and not exactly at the same thing. And you just have to learn for uh, patterns of what might be going on for one group and not another. We should unpack perhaps some of some of those things you mentioned and some of those differences and also maybe look at some of the different types of jokes. Uh, but just before we go into that, because I, I can't help but think there are moments where you just can't hold it back. How does that happen? There could be many ways that it happens, but our ability to inhibit our behavior is a complicated subject. <laughs> uh, this is something that varies across people for just simple things like, uh, you know, keep a straight face and I don't mm. want to see you smile at all. And there isn't any stimulus present. You're just trying to keep a straight face. And a lot of people can't keep a straight face for a long time. Right. Other people can. They win the, the don't smile or don't laugh contest. Uh, so there's individual differences in your ability to inhibit your muscles, to inhibit your face, to inhibit your thoughts. So it's like, don't think funny things. And, you know, if you're thinking funny things, it becomes harder to inhibit it. When you're tired, 
you don't have as many resources to uh, devote to inhibition. And inhibition is a lot of work. And this is why we get into trouble and do things that we're not supposed to do. And laughing is, is like that. You're in a class or a group of people and suddenly something hits you is really funny and you start laughing. Everybody looks at you. You want to stop, uh, but you can't. All right. And so what has happened is that somehow the network is activated. And so you're going through the laughing experience. But the ability to control it has been uh, disengaged for a little bit of time. If you're lucky, you get that control back after a minute because then your motor muscles also start to fatigue. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, now it doesn't need that strong signal anymore. It, it needs a it needs something else. So you start to get tired. But there are um, disorders of the brain where people cannot inhibit their laughter, right? So we know mm. sort of the areas, there's a neural mechanism for inhibition and it has to it has to work, but it can be depressed every now and then for some other reason. Like the absurdity of the situation just somehow is so strong that it's going to take a minute or two before that signal stops firing. You can't just say, stop thinking or stop doing it, right? So mm. the stronger the signal, the harder it is to inhibit. And these moments of hilarity where you can't stop laughing, it was a strong signal. It was not a weak signal. That's the best I can do is to say, you know, uh, cognitively, we can only do so much. So you can be sending unhappy thoughts, unhappy mm. thoughts to try to turn off the signal, but it doesn't happen in one second for most people. I, I, I wonder what makes the signal strong or weak. That also can be an individual difference, right? You have mm. preferences for what you like or not. And usually it is the more absurd, the pairing of the expectation with what actually has happened, uh, the greater the signal. So we tend to find things more funny when it is actually like the least thing I was going to, to say or the least expected thing. Uh, but also it can be uh, driven by uh, your personality. So if you're very open to alternative meanings, you might really enjoy then when you experience the alternate meaning. And so whatever has happened that you weren't expecting really could delight you. Uh, mm. It's it's just something like, you know, why do some people like chocolate and some people like vanilla? It's almost a taste. It's uh, driven by the situation. It's driven by how you're feeling. Uh, so, you know, you, you can't be in a super serious mood and expect to have a strong humor response. You have to be willing to switch. You have to be willing to play. And some people just are better at playing than others. <laughs> Is there a universal among all of these tastes? All of us enjoy sugar, for example. So to some extent, if you pack enough sugar into some drink or some snack, you're going to appeal to 90% of the population. Is there something similar with humor? Is there something universally funny? It's a difficult thing to say because as soon as I say yes, someone will say, "My, I don't do that. You know, so it's one of those <laughs> things where we're talking in very generalities. Mm -hmm. And in general, most things that are classified as play, humor, jokes, have something where there is a setup. You are thinking about one 
type of material, one interpretation of the world, and suddenly you are told that's not the interpretation I meant. I meant something else. So we call this a punchline. And it can be just simple things like playing with language, playing with sounds, playing with meanings, playing with syntax, but it can also be very complicated, playing with the situation, playing with um, uh, stereotypes, playing with social norms, playing with uh, your emotions. I know what you're thinking, I know what you're feeling, and so then I'm gonna pull the table cover out and shock you with something else. And what's interesting about humor is instead of being shocked or horrified or annoyed or angry, which can happen, a lot of times those things cause us to be delighted, to be amused, to be experiencing uh, anything ranging from mirth to joy to actually loving it. Like, oh, that's my favorite joke in the world. Um, and exactly what it is that causes the emotion, that's what probably is not universal because so many social situations are different around the world and so many different social roles. Who's telling the joke? Who's hearing the joke? Who was involved in the, the joke? So the content actually often is uh, different around the world, but there's usually this idea of I was expecting one thing, I didn't get that, I got something else, but the something else is delightful. It's playful. I can see where it comes from. And I like it that two things could exist at the same time, meaning one and meaning two. Um, and I like it that you shared it with me, or I like it that I can see it. So there are like superiority theories of humor that say we feel mm. good when we figure it out. It's like, hey, I'm not that bad off. I can see the first meaning and I can see the second one. And most people enjoy feeling clever, feeling superior. Depends what the humor is, if it's aggressive or you're putting down people. Sometimes they say people do that because they need to feel good. So if I put others down, I get elevated, you know, but a lot of times we just use humor because it's fun. Play is fun. And you wouldn't want to say, why are you playing that game? The game itself may not matter. It is just that we like to play. Hmm. But going back to the actual rules of the game. So we're saying that broadly, you're going to have a setup and you're going to have your punchline. How do you get? good at picking the right setup, the right punchline, the right audience, the right people. Can well, you get good? Yeah, that's the difficulty. That's why we're not all professional comedians and uh, <laughs> doing comedy and writing comedy and all of that. So it's very hard to produce humor. Uh, it's much easier to appreciate it. So it's like art. Can't all draw, but we can appreciate a good picture. So uh, the idea is that the um, this whole laughing network, comedy, humor, brain areas, they are doing things like you're always trying to find meaning in what people are saying. So you're actively working with the person, trying to figure out what it is that they are saying. And then when they suddenly say to you, oh, that's not what I meant at all. Here's what I meant, the punchline. It's almost like a surprise. And some have argued there's this arousal that comes from it. So the bigger the surprise, perhaps the more intense the emotional response. Um, and that uh, some people like not to be surprised 
and they want something small. So they might like a lot of wordplay jokes where you're only playing around with a word or two. Other people, uh, that doesn't do anything for them. They want something big. They want the big surprise party with 50,000 people jumping out, yelling surprise. And so for that, it means I want to do more cognitive work. I want to figure out the situation, the stereotype, what's going on, and, uh, and then hit me with something I wasn't expecting. And then to realize that what I wasn't expecting is uh, also perhaps shocking. That is, it's a violation of social norms or it would not be something I would do, but I know why other people would do it. And then that adds to the amusement. So I have some examples if you want to do examples. Mm. Um, uh, so uh, like uh, here's one that just does a simple ambiguity of a word. Okay. Uh, the spread of COVID-19 is based on two factors. One, how dense the population is. And two, how dense the population is. <laughs> if you deliver it correctly, and I'm not saying I'm a comedian or anything, you know, there's nothing in the setup to tell you that the word dense is mm. the word that's going to be ambiguous. You don't know if I'm going to say something about COVID-19. So you're activating all this knowledge about COVID-19. Then I mentioned the dense of the population. The dominant meaning usually means like density. And so you are thinking about a lot of people in the um, population, and then you're hit with the ambiguity that dense could also mean not too um, smart, it is like not expected. And then you realize, well, of course, I knew that dense had more than one meaning, so I can figure it out. Uh, and then somehow you got to do it right away. So there's like a fluency involved. You can come out, oh, you know, three hours later. Oh, density. Yes, yes. It's like I'm not going to laugh. Right. It's 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 used up already. Uh, and a lot of people say in the research that puns, they are a form of humor, but they don't usually get laughs. They get groans. Or like, oh, yes, of course, because, you know, the person is just deliberately playing around with the word. They're not really doing something to uh, completely surprise you with it. So uh, puns are a little bit like simple jokes. They don't elicit very strong laughs. OK, uh, Robert Weissman, uh, a psychologist in the UK, decided to uh, use the Internet to collect around the world jokes that people thought were funny. And then he had people from around the world vote on them. So which joke do you think is funny? So they read like 30 jokes and they would have to rate it. And then another set of people wrote joke, uh, read and wrote their ratings of how funny they thought it was. So eventually he collects all these ratings from thousands and thousands of people. This was the funniest joke. Now, the exact wording might change depending on your culture, because not every culture has, uh, say, 911, which is what the American version has in it. Uh, so I've, I've tried to put a neutral version here. And you may have heard it before, which also means it won't seem funny. But you can see how this is a lot different than just wordplay. Right? Two hunters are out in the woods when one of them collapses. The other guy whips out his cell phone and starts to call emergency services. And he says, my friend is dead. What can I do? And the operator says, calm down. I can help. First, let's make sure he's dead. There's silence. And then a gunshot is heard. Back on the phone, the guy says, OK, now what? <laughs> 
So this joke, to think that people like this joke is rather interesting because a murder just happened. All right. So if the guy had only had a heart attack and he wasn't dead, he <laughs> is now because his friend just shot him. How can that be funny? Right. So the content is not funny at all. It's rather horrible. And mm. yet people find this funny. And that's the problem with humor is you can't just say, well, anything about, you know, murder is never going to be funny because here apparently this joke was listed as the funniest around the world. And then give that some thought about what it means mm. for the state of the world. <laughs> this is the humor of the human population. Okay. There's a very similar one. He also did things, uh, not much is up on the website anymore, but uh, he wrote a book called Quirkology, which has more details in it. But if viewers want to go to the website, it's laughlab.co.uk. And uh, he talks a little bit about the project and how he collected it. And there's a few jokes on there. And uh, a few years ago, he had a thing up there with what was the most funniest for Americans. So I looked at it and I thought, I don't know what this says about Americans either, because uh, <laughs> it doesn't on the surface look like it should be funny. OK, so here it is. A man and a friend are playing golf one day at their local golf course. One of the guys is about to chip onto the green when he sees a long funeral procession on the road next to the course. He stops in mid swing, takes off his golf cap, closes his eye and bows down in prayer. His friend says, well, wow, that's the most thoughtful and touching thing I have ever seen. You truly are a kind man. And then the man then replies, yeah, well, we were married 35 years. <laughs> that was rated by the Americans as their favorite <laughs> funniest joke. I don't know if it is poking fun at golfers. It's poking fun at marriage. Marriage. Uh, a 35 year old marriage. I don't know. But to me, it's like any wife should be offended by this joke. Uh, but apparently, you know, the, oh, yeah, I can see my husband doing that. You know, it's that kind <laughs> of thing. And um, when you try to tear it apart and say, why is this funny? It's mm. really hard because this also has death and funeral. And it's, it's rather mean in some ways that the scoffer didn't go to his own wife's funeral. Uh, it's just a bizarre combination of what we expect, what should be done. So in America, the social norms are husbands should go to the funeral of their wives, not out there playing golf. And then to hear it happening and to realize that yeah, there's probably somebody who has done that makes it funny. There's part of me that thinks, is this a case of just picking a horrible situation so that the surprise at the end is just transformative to the entire to the entire setting. I don't think you have to have a horrible situation. I don't know what it means that those are the examples that I found to bring in. There are plenty of examples that are just very light. They tend not to be as complicated. So maybe the horrible situation is where you think it could only be interpreted in a horrible way. And that adds to the incongruity that this doesn't fit. Why would someone be making a joke about death? Why would somebody take a horrible situation and turn it into humor? And yet we do. I think in some ways this helps to explain absurd humor. 
So okay. humor can play around like with double meanings, but it can also be just it just doesn't make any sense at all. That is, it has no meaning at all. And people, especially the younger generation, seems to find absurd humor rather funny. So I have an example here from a humor researcher who said it was his funniest joke. What's the difference between a sparrow? None whatsoever. Both legs are of equal length, especially the left. Wow. I have to say for myself, no humor response when I hear that. I think I grade too many papers in psychology to be <laughs> after people's syntax to say, if you're going to have a difference between something, you need two things, not just one. None of these sentences in the joke make sense. It has no meaning. As a whole set, it makes no sense. It's mm. just, why is someone, why did even someone generate it? All right. I have no idea. And and there are plenty of these types of jokes out there on social media where people will pair a funny image with a saying. They'll take a serious image and put something funny with it. The two things have nothing to do with each other. And people are rating these as highly funny. It's the basic definition of humor. You're expecting meaning. I'm not going to give you meaning. You're expecting uh, something that should be dark because the subject content matter is dark, like murder or, or death of a spouse. And I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to give you something else instead. I'm on the older generation, so um, absurd humor doesn't exactly amuse me, at least verbally. But some of the pictures are rather funny in the videos that are posted. They have no meaning. They're not making a statement about the world. They're just there to uh, control the emotions of the viewer, to make amusement be the response, and then to sort of say, you laugh, I laugh, we're all laughing. This is what humor is. But I, I wonder where the incongruity lies with absurd humor. And I, I suppose there is some incongruity if we look at a rational mind that comes out with something that's completely rational. Because I don't think the same pleasure would hold if, for example, you were to just pick random words out of a hat. I, I, yeah, I don't know. Just picking random words should not be funny. As sometimes I think that's what absurd humor is, like this mm. joke with the sparrow. It's like, I don't get it. Um, there's nothing about birds that makes this funny. There's nothing about, I just don't get it. But of course, there's a lot of jokes I don't get. It doesn't have to be absurd for me not to get it. It's just uh, how you're thinking at the time and whatever. There has to be sort of this willingness to like lighten up not take the world so seriously. And it's a different form. It's a little bit like maybe abstract art versus a landscape. Mm. Completely different. And yet somehow people can get the abstract art. Other people look at it and say, did the person just drop the can of paint? You know, what has happened here? So there's a structure. There are some rules behind absurd humor, but it is mostly like it's not the same rules as double meanings. The only incongruity really is, is that you're expecting meaning, but you're not getting it. Or uh, never before you heard this joke were these two things put together. 
So it can't just be any random. There usually is uh, some distance between them, uh, some kind of opposition, maybe. I'm expecting uh, serious and here comes funny. Uh, so you might get like on tip, um, uh, you might get something like um, funny music being played, but something serious being said. And you're mm. like, why is someone playing funny music or high uh, energy music when something serious here is being said? Shouldn't it be classical music or something like that? And that's a great distance. But if you play f uh, funny music, lively music, music that's very engaging and someone is giving a passionate talk, well, then that's not going to be as funny. Right. Because mm. they go together. So the incongruency is often like why these two things paired in the way they are in that situation. So sometimes you can't just look at the joke. You need to know when is it being told. Humor can happen without planning it. You don't know it's funny until afterwards. All of a sudden someone points and looks mm. at it and you start laughing, right? So it could happen without intention. And uh, But not all humor is verbal. There's a lot of physical comedy. You don't mean to fall over the chair, but it's probably funnier if the person falling over is someone who's very stately, uh, someone who takes Isn't great care in making sure they don't trip and then here they trip. <laughs> Um, so it's things like that where somehow there's a lot of background knowledge setting you up to what you expect the one attribute to be doing and then the other one. And then when they're paired, you think how unlikely. But now there's a new meaning from the pairing and you find that pairing absurd, nonsense, playful, funny. It's amazing it astonishes me how much viewership falling videos have on youtube and everywhere else how much pleasure we can derive from a limited amount of pain in the right situation at the right time and of course it's an individual difference so not everybody loves physical comedy uh, something like uh, the three stooges right mm. that's aggressive physical comedy mm. and uh, you know some people like it and some people hate it and other people say i just don't get it i'm not, not even going to watch it no emotional reaction at all except sort of a dismissal like that's nonsense but that's not absurd nonsense it's just nonsense that doesn't evoke a positive emotion um, and I think by, you know, a very broad definition, then anything which uh, doesn't go together, you're set up to expect one thing and then you don't and you get a positive emotion. Uh, we're going to call that humor. I, I understand that laughter is a way of signaling uh, with profound implications on both the psychological plane as well as the physiological plane. I understand that humor involves an incongruency between the setup and the big reveal, the punchline. And I also understand that just like with any other taste, it varies significantly across the population. What I find interesting is how sales and marketing are starting to use humor more and more to break the ice and bridge the gap between the formality of corporate culture and the the tribes of consumption that they're trying to touch so perhaps we can spend a bit of time on this 
the advertising uh, field does spend a lot of time studying the effect of humor on whether people like the ad, whether they like the brand, whether they will now go out and buy a product. Uh, there's also ads for like messages, like go get uh, colon screening and things like this for cancer. So uh, all that research is done. And uh, basically what they find is that humor is attention grabbing. So if you see humor, whether it's a cartoon figure or you're reading words and you see a, a joke of some kind, a funny face, a funny use of words, people will look at the ad longer. And researchers or the advertisers like this because if you're looking longer, then you have more time to process the ad to sort of say, what brand is this? What's it for? What could I use it for? So they like it that humor is attention grabbing. Uh, however, not everybody might like the humor. So you're taking a risk when people are looking at the ad longer that they might be thinking like, I don't like this or what's wrong with this company? You know, they they've lost their their status in the world. They sunk low to, to humor. So it's a risk by companies to use humor, but there is, you know, this idea that uh, ever since 1920s, back in the behaviorist mm. days of psychology, that advertisers wanted to condition uh, the public to associate a happy response with the company or with the brand or with the product. And because of this, they usually say because humor evokes positive emotions, then you will associate positive emotions with the brand. And there's some research to support this, that it could be that even like a long time later, you're in the store and here you see the brand, the, the product that you saw an ad for and the positive emotions come back. And this could help you to gravitate towards that product over another one, which you have not seen an ad for and no positive emotions are coming. Some people buy based on emotions. This is make me feel good. And if it does, you know, that's they're um, going to buy it. So there is some research to show that putting humor in ads helps. There's two problems. One I've already sort of mentioned, and that is you don't know you're going to get a positive response from the person. Humor is so broad and there is so great an individual difference that some of your consumers are turned off by the humor. And so you're losing clientele. Now, the solution for that is just have lots of ads, some with humor in it and some with not, so that those turned off people will also get exposure to the serious ads and still like the product, you know, for that reason. But the other problem is, is that companies have to uh, advertise to not just one culture or one city. And, you know, what is a culture? It isn't just a country. It's subgroups. You know, there's men, women, children, adults. There's uh, ethnic groups. There are it was the city people versus the rural people, the ocean people versus the mountain people. Such a great variety of types of people. It could even be political party, right? Uh, Republicans and Democrats not wanting to uh, like the same thing. So when you're advertising, the decision is what should I 
right, what kind of humor should I put in? So there's tons of research as to what kind of humor appeals to what kind of person. And it's a risk. And some companies don't want to take the risk. And it's an interesting thing. Or you can even have a lawsuit. So, for example, mm. when the cigarette companies put Joe Camel on their label, there was a lawsuit that they were directly marketing to children and encouraging children to smoke. So it can be a bad thing, right? But all ages like humor. And it's not clear that if you are trying to appeal to a 40-year-old to buy this product, that just because you had a cartoon rather than a, a photograph, that children aren't going to be attracted to it. And it, it's a big risk. And some companies, to avoid the risk, just don't use humor at all. And you, you save off of that. The other thing is there's still a big stigma in a lot of cultures that humor is uh, downplaying the seriousness of something. So if I make a joke, it means I'm not taking the topic seriously. So there are a lot of people who feel very passionate about something like a health message. Uh, the classic example from the literature is uh, save the trees because uh, too much paper is being produced and people are killing off the forest. There was an ad that tried to encourage people not to waste paper by showing Tarzan swinging through the forest, except the forest ran out. And so there wasn't another vine to reach for. And he falls flat onto a chopped up tree trunk prairie. All right. So that is a funny uh, use of humor to try to get a message of save the trees. Well, it turned out that the people who were passionate about saving the trees hated the cartoon, <laughs> they hated the ad because they said it downplayed the message. It made it look like a joke that saving trees is not a serious problem, but a joke. Right. And there's always this danger in what is, what does it mean that it's a joke? Right. So I've been calling it play, but that's a positive interpretation. The negative interpretation is not real, not important and not worth my time. And advertisers have to watch out for that, because if that's what the message getting across is, is this product is not worth your time, not important. That's not the message advertisers want to get across. Right. And you don't know who is receiving the ad. How are they interpreting? So there's a lot of interactions of like, if I didn't know that paper was ruining the forest, that ad turned out to be very effective. That people who were polled and said, I don't know anything about paper. I don't know anything about forest. They then viewed that ad and then they they now cared more about saving forests. So an ad can be effective for one group and actually uh, anger another group. It's very complicated. No doubt. And it sounds like there's a very thin line to follow to be able to reap the benefits of this. Yeah, It just makes me wonder if it's worth it, really. Well, that's what some companies decide. However, sales can be really good for things with humor. Uh, Super Bowl commercials, you know, a lot of them have humor in them because people are laughing. They're having a good time. They want to then go out and buy this product. They paid attention to the commercial. If the commercial or advertisement is boring, black and white, nothing there to grab your attention, then it has no effect either. 
And uh, so humor has, you have to do it right. People do a lot of pilot work and, you know, focus groups and test their products on people. And the best solution that I see in, in the literature is one ad should not be the only ad for your company. You have to have multiple ads and you have to know who your audience is. So if it is a television ad, what TV show is the commercial appearing on? Right. So aggressive humor works better with a sports game than it does, say, with a soap opera. Uh, so, you you know, you sort of gauge what magazine to put your ads in. Who are the subscribers? What's the audience? Is this going to be a billboard that millions of people see children, adults, all ages, you know, driving down the highway? Or is it something in a magazine that only men will read? That has a lot to do with it. And. Um, people say it's big bucks and uh, advertising and that uh, they companies will take a risk if it's going to earn them a uh, profit. Hmm. What about one-to-one type sales? Is there any formula for the, for the salesperson to figure out who they're up against? Are there any tells? Well, if you start off with a joke and the other person doesn't laugh, that's a big tell. So <laughs> so part of it is uh, you try to gauge like anyone would. Uh, how is my message being received? I think the sales, a lot of times they say like humor is a good icebreaker, you know, so there's the formalities like, hello, how are you uh, type of statements that are not humorous. But then, you know, you can sort of do something like, uh, you know, you clumsily get the vacuum cleaner out of the bag. And if the person laughs, then, you know, they like physical humor. Right. If you uh, have some uh, thing and you say, hey, that's a pun or uh, I didn't mean to say that it actually has another meaning. And if the person laughs, that could be a tell. So usually you can tell from the facial reactions of the other person whether they like it. In general, the research shows when strangers meet um, that humor is attractive. It, you attend mm. to the other person and there is like these conversation rules of how to behave. You nod, you smile, you know, you show that you are liking something um, or else you say, oh, that's not me. You know, not another political uh, sales campaign, please. So whatever it is, you get emotional reactions and you share it. And I think that a good salesperson probably is very high on looking for these types of tells and has a repertoire behind them. So if I see this response, I'm going to do A, B, and C, almost like a magician who says, pick a card, any card. Well, really, they have a set of responses depending on what card you pick. It looks like they only had one and it happens to be the one you, you know, from the card you picked, but really they're, they've got a whole repertoire of possible responses. I think comedians do this as well. Professional comedians report, you know, they'll open up with something and then when the audience is not laughing, they throw those jokes out the window and they pick up some other ones that they're going to use. Hmm. But you mentioned attractiveness there. Yeah. The, the evolutionary psychologists. So these are people who study mating behaviors, mm -hmm. uh, things which would try to keep the mating relationship going. They say that in general, um, if you have a good sense of humor, if you use it, 
you are displaying competence. You show you have cognitive skills because I can set you up and I can deliver the punchline or I can understand the punchline. So that is a desirable trait to pass on to the next generation, that they'll be socially or, or cognitively competent. When you tell jokes and you laugh at them, uh, you're also showing social competence. So, for example, they say women like men to tell the jokes because this tells them that the men want the women to laugh. They care about women. That's the right kind of father you want for your children, somebody who cares about you, someone who wants your emotions to be positive. And so they say that there's just like this biological um, attraction there that when we see humor, we highly value the person as long as it's not something real obnoxious. I'm just talking regular, you know, uh, small talk type jokes. And it's that thing where um, it's an admire trait. Um, it is uh, something of a virtue. So there is research that says that um, humor is something that is desired across all uh, countries. Maybe you yourself don't think you have a very good sense of humor, but you like seeing humor in others. Um, they seem wise, kind. Uh, they are curious people. People who see two meanings in the world are people who aren't close-minded and narrow-minded. And who doesn't like a virtuous person? So it's that kind of thing where it's a very attractive thing at a psychological level. It may be attracted at the genetic level where you're um, mm. looking for people who will help you get to the age of adulthood so that you can mate. So you like seeing it among your friends and you like seeing it in your partner. That is so interesting and I'm, I'm sold. So can I get better at humor? Is this something that I can practice? Yeah. Now, the good thing is you can practice your humor, no matter how bad you think you are right. at humor. And people have looked at this and they even have constructed like a seven step program. Wow. And so the idea is you, <laughs> uh, depending how bad you are, you might need to practice it more than others. But the idea is you deliberately go out to try to uh, surround yourself with humor. So you start watching more comedies on TV. You start going to movies. You listen to podcasts and radio radio programs where people are laughing so that you can get exposed to all the different kinds of humor that are out there and you find what it is you like. You get the positive benefits if you can laugh along with that humor, right? So you start to feel encouraged, enthusiastic that maybe I can do this. It gives you a repertoire of what you could uh, possibly try out on your own if you're trying to produce humor, but at least for appreciation. It's like anything. If you want to be a good writer, you have to read a lot. If you want to know about art, you need to study all the different styles. So no one style fits all. You try to expose yourself to as much humor as possible. Uh, you keep a diary, a humor diary, and you make sure that, you know, every week you are getting some type of humor in your life. Whether you liked it at the beginning, you might not like it at first, but eventually the theory is you will find the kind of humor around you that you like, and it will make you feel better, you know, when you have it. Feel better, gives you more cognitive resources to try practicing it on your own. You develop a, a taste, a sense of humor that way. Uh, then you also have to be playful. So the second step is you have to cultivate a playful attitude. You have to play with language. 
Everything isn't just direct to the point exactly what I mean. Try to use some metaphors. Try to use some figurative language. Exaggerate a little bit. Don't always just be literal, right? When you see things around you, if something breaks, it isn't the end of the world. You play with it. Oh, look, it's like Humpty Dumpty that, you know, broke. Something like that where you just are willing to step back, not see the world so seriously. And this is actually a big step for a lot of people because they've been taught that like adults don't play anymore, only children play. And so the idea is you may be inhibiting your laughter network. You may be inhibiting your ability to go the extra length and see why two things going together are funny. So cultivate a playful attitude. Uh, you have to force yourself to laugh more often. Now, there are some researchers who say it doesn't even have to be in response to humor. I don't know how true this is because I haven't tried it myself, but that, you know, like, like aerobics exercise, you do three times a, a week for five, 10 minutes and you just laugh. <laughs> I don't, you just keep doing it. And apparently <laughs> laughing more often, you're going to get all the physical and psychological benefits of laughter itself. And then I say, what you really want to do is you want to laugh more often at the right times. So if you work all day and you're not allowed to laugh at work or nothing really funny happens at work, try to make sure you're doing something at night that will make you laugh. There's some research to show that we tend to laugh less often the older we get. So, you know, this is a youth culture. We all mm. want to be young. So I say, you know, I don't claim that laughing makes you younger. But it could be that you're socially isolated when you're older and you don't realize that you've kind of withdrawn from people and you're missing out on all that social support. So if the exercise is laugh more often, but I don't want to laugh by myself, maybe you'll seek out some friends. Right. And then you get the benefit of being an older person who still has a lot of friends around and not somebody who's by themselves. Okay. It could also be just go to the movies, watch sitcoms. So it's a lot like surrounding yourself, only you're going to force yourself to laugh, whether you feel it or not. And then eventually you would feel the laughter because your sense of humor is improving. Uh, you're supposed to work on your verbal humor. So that's a little bit easier. They don't recommend you trip over things so that you get physical <laughs> comedy. So they say play with the verbal humor. Look for double meanings. Try to find things you can do. Maybe even practice uh, coming up with some knock-knock jokes or something like that. Uh, you want to seek it out. So the claim is humor is happening everywhere. But maybe you don't think you have a sense of humor because you don't notice it. So it's like, look around, see the humor in your life, find it somewhere. It could even be like not just work or home, but like on the bus, um, on things that I'm doing, the bills I'm getting from shopping on Cyber Monday, whatever it is, you're going to find a way to uh, uh, turn it into funny things that are happening. Just imagining some people getting the bills in January for all the things they're buying today in some ways is funny because they're not thinking about that right now. So it's it's a, a different mental uh, interpretation of what's happening today is people are actually going bankrupt. They're not uh, necessarily uh, buying gifts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, you need to laugh at yourself. So this goes on with uh, playing, uh, having a playful attitude. You need to lighten up. So you make a mistake. You have to find a way to say it's okay and to laugh about it. 
uh, turn embarrassments into amusement. Um, I find that one the easiest. I'm always doing something where I say, oh, no, not again. And then I find I say, oh, this is one of those moments. Turn it into a funny thing that would uh, give you a positive affect response, not a negative. Oh, no, frustration or something like that. And last but not least, uh, you have to find humor among stress. So they call this home play. And so you're supposed to write down like at night uh, in your diary, you write things that are bothering you. I'm worried about money. I, I want to have enough money for retirement or I'm worried about medical bills. I'm worried about COVID-19. Whatever the stress is, you write it down and then you have to turn it somehow into humor. Right. <laughs> so it's not always easy to do, but it could be something like where you say, um, gee, if I lose my sense of taste, well, at least I can clean out the refrigerator with all the old food in it. Something that somehow takes the negative thought of like, oh, no, this is horrible. And then you try to find something amusing that you can say about it. And then that you get all the benefits then of changing stressors. And if you're not stressed in life, you have more time and more resources to go about and have a good time. Uh, people who report using humor to cope with stress report having um, a higher life satisfaction, being uh, feeling curious about the world, feeling like they belong with the world. Uh, just overall subjective well-being is improved. And it's because stress has pull us down and make us not feel like life is worth living, whereas humor makes you feel like you belong with other people and the world is a great place it's a playful it's a it's a playground and that is just a, a lightning and makes you a happier uh, person to see the world that way I have taken notes. <laughs> I did notice that the the um, the research doesn't say these are easy things to do, but they <laughs> usually have people do them. They sign up for classes and they do it for an hour each step for an hour um, across, say, maybe two months, one a week. And uh, at the end of the eight weeks, they claim that they uh, feel like they have a better sense of humor. They ask their friends to rate their sense of humor. And the friends report that these people who took these classes have a better sense of humor. So I don't think it means you, you know, become a professional comedian, but when opportunity presents itself, you will use your humor and your friends will notice. And that in itself helps your friends to like you more and you to like them because they are liking you. And it's all a, a good thing as long as you do it appropriately. Right. You can't go around turning everything into a joke or people uh, won't take you seriously. And anything you do say, they'll think you're joking. And that's not good either. So there are some downsides to the laughter, which we didn't talk about. But uh, it's just the idea that it takes a lot to know when is it appropriate to tell a joke? When is it appropriate to laugh? Just like you were thinking, how do I know that the face I'm looking at is laughing and not aggressive? Right. For some people, they can't tell the difference no matter what. And it's like a social mm. intelligence. And this is where that whole brain gets involved. It really is every aspect of um, higher level thinking, uh, feelings and intuition and the fluency of thinking. 
all have to be working well. And not all of us have high social intelligence. So you may be able to get double meanings and you may be able to experience mirth. But if you don't know when it is appropriate and when it is not, you're going to get a lot of backlash, right? People will, oh, yeah, that's funny. But you can tell they're pushing you away rather than asking you to approach them. So uh, it's, it's very complicated. And some people who don't do well at knowing when to laugh actually have a lot of social problems. They they can sense that people aren't finding me funny. People don't get it. I'm alone in the world. I'm the only one who gets this joke. Mm. Um, it's, it's a very uh, hard thing and can coexist with any kind of social processing. So people with autism, people with learning disabilities who can't think fast enough to get the punchline, uh, some disorders where you're not really sure what's literal, what's not. Uh, and just being a kid where you might not have all that brain power yet because your brain is still developing and you just don't get the humor of other people around you. It can cause, you know, depression and sadness and more complications. And some researchers have argued that there should be humor classes just as important as learning how to read. You should learn what humor is, how it manifests itself, and try to tell when is a fellow uh, child being aggressive, when are they not? When are they inviting you to play, and when are they not? Because it's so ambiguous. That's the nature of humor. You don't always say, hey, I've got a joke for you. You just do the joke. And not everybody can tell that you are joking. They think you're serious. And it runs into a lot of social problems where you misunderstandings. Uh, husbands and wives can have fights because they think the teasing is ridicule or harping on them rather than terms of endearment. It's really difficult to know. And someone say, well, we always do it this way in my family. Well, the spouse comes from a different family, and that's not how they joked in their family. And they think you're mad at them or angry with them when actually you're not. Um, and I mean, sometimes I see things on TV where someone tells a joke and everybody else in the sitcom is like, oh, no, we're annoyed. And then I mm. think, oh, I made a joke like that. Was everybody <laughs> annoyed? And I begin to wonder if I even realized what other people were doing. And just the awareness, I think, helps you, you know, helps you be a better friend. Uh, some people have it instinctively. They know exactly when a joke is needed. Other people, it's like, I don't know what you want from me. Do you want, you know, do you want sympathy? Do you want to lighten up? Do you want distraction? Do you want uh, to stay and just sit in silence? It's really a difficult. Uh, social interaction is very difficult, very complex. And humor is right there with it. It's just difficult. But it seems like you can get better, right? It does feel like with a lot of practice and with the right steps, you you would be able to train your brain to pick up on those cues and pick up those little fragments of reality to construct a communication that actually works and, and becomes more and more reliable. I agree. It's, it's a lot like personality. People tend to think your personality mm. is fixed, but your personality is not fixed. Your personality changes through life depending on the situations you are in. 
And, uh, you know, you can't make an introvert be an extrovert. So the extrovert wants to use humor to be the life of the party and have all the attention on them. But an introvert can enjoy uh, humor, too, uh, with friends, a few friends. They can use it with themselves to lighten up and see the world a different way. So if someone said, I'm too shy to ever really use humor, you know, you're not going to throw them into a party and say, now start telling jokes, right? That that's too far of an adjustment. But we can be a little more extroverted or an extrovert could be a little more introverted. We can move up and down. And in some situations, people will report that they change quite a bit. Uh, especially like international students who come from one culture and then they go to college in another culture. Uh, when they're with their college friends, they may be a little more extroverted because at least in America, that's what the college students are. They're all outgoing, you know, parties and doing all this, that and the other thing. Uh, but then when they go home, they become quiet and reserved again. All right. So something like this and you say, well, what's the real personality? Is the person an outgoing person or are they quiet? Right. And the idea is that we're not really just one thing, but we have at our disposal um, a set of attributes, some of which come with ease, some with which take more work, some of which we may be hesitant to do. Like, I'm not sure I really want to be the life of the party uh, and others who are like, I'm afraid and I'm never going to do it. Right. So you measure the degree of introversion and extroversion, just like the degree of sense of humor. Do you use humor often? Often? Do you use it sometimes? Do you use it rarely? So if you say rarely, you can move up, but you're probably not going to do it all the time, right? You're not going to mm-hmm. do something, but you can move. You can get better because um, humor is thought of as a skill and a skill is something that you can always get better at it as long as you keep practicing, But even great comedians or athletes will tell you, you stop practicing and you lose you lose some of that skill, right? Humor can be thought of as a talent. Some of us are talented naturally. You then get rewarded when you use your humor. And so then people suddenly learn that you're a comedian because you're very talented. Uh, Other people were not talented. They tried it and they didn't get rewarded. They got punished. And so they stopped (laughs) using it, right? So who knows why at any given time, someone who fills out these sense of humor scales, you score on the low end and says, but I want to, I want, you know, to be satisfied with life and I want to be curious and I want people to admire my competency in humor. So I'm going to practice it. And the research says you can improve, but I don't believe the research is saying that you improve 16 times to the point where (laughs) you've now uh, the best comedian ever, right? You have to keep it all in uh, perspective. Makes sense. Humor and personality, how do they go together? Is there any relationship between the two or is humor just a factor of social, emotional intelligence and has nothing to do with? No, it has a lot to do with personality. Um, in some uh, perspectives, it is a personality trait. So you can judge okay. yourself in my personality. I'm a humorous person or something like that. Just like I'm an mm. extrovert. You just sort of say that word describes me. Uh, So that's what personality tends to be. Words that describe you and then uh, some combination. Right. So I'm a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, What they do in the personality field is they basically say that, you know, like openness to experience. 
This is a trait that a, a dimension that covers a lot of things and people who are open to experience tend to be, you know, willing to look for different opportunities. If you score low and say, no, I have no need to experience a hundred different things every day. I'm happy with my life right now and I want nothing new. You can nudge that a little bit so that you start having some new experiences. They were thrown on you. So I never wanted to do online education, but then a pandemic happened and suddenly I'm doing online uh, education. Right. Uh, I can be open to that or I could say I quit my job. I can't do it. Right. So a lot of us are pushed to be a little bit different than our actual trait. Same thing with humor. So uh, humorous people tend to describe themselves as open to experience, as being agreeable. And if you think about it, you have to be agreeable to sit through some of these humor things because the punchline takes five minutes to get to. Right. So you have to be willing to play along and you have to be willing to hold it and wait and not jump it. Right. No one likes somebody to say, wait, I've got the punchline. Don't even bother finishing. That ruins the the whole thing. So uh, you have to be somewhat agreeable. You have to be willing to play. So you're working on something serious uh, with a coworker, and the coworker starts making a joke or starts playing with uh, the pencils and the pens on the table, whatever, and starts laughing. Agreeable people will start laughing, too. They'll say, OK, time out for five minutes, you know, and we'll take a break. Uh, disagreeable people will say, no, I got my task. I'm trying to reach my goals and I don't want to be uh, dissuaded from reaching my goal. So uh, people who describe themselves as having a sense of humor describe themselves as being agreeable. Um the what else uh, extroversion, of course, is a big one. So in general, mm. when people say that they have a sense of humor, they also rate themselves as having um, a high on extroversion. But part of that is maybe producing the humor is more tied to the extroversion and appreciating it. Introverts appreciate humor, too. So correlations are the kind of thing where it doesn't mean you have to be this way mm. and that's something wrong with you if you're not. It just means more often than not, if you have a sense of humor, you're open to experience, you're agreeable. Uh, then there's like humor styles. What do you use humor for? Uh, some people use humor to connect with other people, and uh, we call that affiliative humor style. And people who use humor to make other people feel good, they also tend to be open to experience, agreeable, and, and extroverts. Uh, not always, but the, the correlation is there. Uh, we see that. Uh, people who use aggressive humor, uh, they are putting others down and like another group, it could be sexist humor, racist humor, or just making fun of somebody else. They tend to score high on a personality dimension that's called uh, neuroticism, uh, emotional instability. They're a little bit where they um, they need to do something in order to feel one way one minute and then something else to feel different another. Uh, so it's not good to be emotionally unstable. Your friends like to predict what you like, what you don't like, how you're going to be today. They don't want to see a different mood every five minutes, right? So it's not usually healthy for relationships if you are high on um, neuroticism. But it turns out that if you like aggressive humor, you kind of like that. Uh, you like it where one minute you're laughing and next minute people are being beaten up. And then you like it that there's a put down and then, a, and then also a 
will lift up. So there's a little bit of that instability in aggressive humor that you're using something funny to actually insult or offend other people. Uh, and so that's a personality trait you tend not to see with the other kinds of humor that most people it's no, I have to be pretty stable and then I'll laugh. You know, I laugh at things that are funny. I don't laugh at things that aren't funny would be like emotional stability. So a lot of personality research uh, into different kinds of humor. So there's irony, there's wit, there's sarcasm, uh, there's the incongruity type humor and uh, lots of correlations to show that your personality is related to your humor preferences, your humor um, uh, style, how you use humor in your daily life. Uh, but it doesn't really mean anything other to say that there seems to be a, um, a connection between the two of them. The personality researchers often say that your DNA causes your personality. When they do studies with monozygotic twins, uh, dizygotic twins, siblings, parents, friends, strangers, you find that the strongest overlap is between the, um, the monozygotic twins. So this idea is that your personality, though you think it's you, actually comes from the way your brain is hardwired, right? The DNA tells your brain how to activate different areas at the same time, what to do to laugh, when not to laugh, maybe your propensity to laugh. Um, so these things wow. are all there. We think we're in control, but according to the personality people, it's a myth to think your personality was caused by how you were raised. It was caused a lot by your your genes. And um, I don't know if everybody agrees with this, but that is what the personality researchers say. Yeah, so it's what, what you're saying is that we can inherit humor for generations. Yeah. Yes. And I'm not sure if it's true, but I feel like it says you're just like your parents, <laughs> which is itself funny because a lot of times my parents don't get it. Right. <laughs> they say parents aren't laughing at what I'm laughing, but there is beyond. It's only the content. Right. So the content is generational. The content is the experience and the situations around us. Um, but, uh, you know, your parents have a whole big history than you do. But the researchers say it is a, a significant portion of your personality, a significant portion of your humor characteristics, uh, the way you use humor is is from genetics which makes sense in some ways if you take the evolutionary people it was humor that attracted people in the first place right there so the idea is there was something there about what the the male was doing and what the female was doing and uh, they combined they had children and so there's something there in the genes that says this is the kind of humor i like if you didn't like that person's humor you probably wouldn't have made it with them it's interesting because if we go down that route what the trajectory suggests is that we're getting funnier and funnier. Or I suppose it, it would only be for one fourth of the population. There's uh, one half of the population has mixed mismatches that somehow they made it when they really <laughs> had nothing in common. Um, it's It could be that we're getting funnier. I don't know. We're certainly getting more intelligent. So there's a lot of the genetic research that says, you know, that back 150 years ago, the average 
average IQ was around 100. But now on those same tests, the average IQ is higher, like 110, uh, something like that, that people say, but you have to keep in culture as well. Um, it could even be uh, innocent things that have nothing to do with humor, but just the fact that now we can share it in so many different ways than we could before. So who knows what television and the internet has done to our minds. How do you I think things are going to evolve in the next 10 years? Yeah, I don't know if it's interesting or scary. So it <laughs> seems to me that at least from my students, because they're my source of uh, knowledge for the younger generation, how much they really like absurd humor. The okay. memes and the, the nonsense humor that to me doesn't really play with incongruity other than it's nonsense. And they really like it. And so I thought I can imagine the world 50 years from now where that's the dominant form of humor. And it's uh, to me, I wouldn't call that interesting. It was like, oh, no, we've lost so much of it. Right. And uh, uh, of what we know. But, you know, this is how behavior is. It's part of our culture. You don't behave in a vacuum. And many things that were true, you know, hundreds of years ago are not true now, except people always liked humor. Could we look at some particular use cases uh, encountering resistance or tension or conflict? And how can humor smoothen the, the gears? So you're imagining a situation that's tense mm. and you want to know how humor could make it less tense. Uh, a lot of that conflict work is done with uh, partners and marriage where uh, partners are in therapy and they're, you know, they're not getting along and they're experiencing conflict. And uh, what they report is that humor is a great way to encourage uh, starting the conversation. So you have something difficult you want to get out and you're not sure how your partner is feeling. So, you know, you sit down at the kitchen table, you look at each other and the one person tells a joke or the other person says something funny. It can be anything. It doesn't really matter what it is. And all it does is get the other person to smile. And right away, there's eye contact. There's people looking at each other and they, they are, mimicking the response of laughter, right? They may not be laughing, but they are breathing better. They're more relaxed in their muscles. And now they are more receptive to like, okay, let's look at the budget, you know, whatever the <laughs> conflict is about. When there's conflict, there's tension, there's negative emotions. And what humor is doing there is trying to get the conflict to be uh, lower, to not feel anger, to maybe even not, you know, be tired, but to give you some energy. So sometimes mm. humor is a way to energize things. If you're exhausted, because here it is, the problem still exists, you know, and there's a risk here that the project might fail or the marriage might fail. Um, you know, people are scared about that. And when you're scared, you don't breathe as well. You're tense. Uh, you don't know what to say. But with humor, there's a little bit the rules are relaxed. And so not only is the body relaxed a little bit when you start laughing or telling a joke or you come together, there's eye contact. There's a feeling like we're in this together. And most problems are easier to solve when you're not alone and you've got people working with you. Um, so that's usual. The kind of thing is that, you know, you need resilience. You need to be kind to one another. And if you use humor to make somebody else feel good, that's an act of kindness. 
Um, if somebody has offended you and you want to correct them uh, and tell them like that wasn't the right thing to do, you can even use humor to gently correct them, you know, and say something like, uh, I don't know, try a little harder and, you know, why don't you just hit me? You know, say something that would make a, a light response. The person knows you're playful and it's not extreme play, but it's just enough to make the conflict res uh, go to the back a little bit, to not be center stage. Uh, people are willing to problem solve instead of, um, you know, keep the fight up. Got it. Um, and that's why they say humor is a great way to cope because conflict, stress, all those things that happen are happening because uh, outside things. And then humor, what you're really doing is like you're uh, regulating your emotions, you're managing the emotions of the other person, and you're trying to do it like from the inside out rather than from the outside in. And it just affords another strategy to try to cope with conflict rather than a direct attack or um, giving up. I think this is really useful advice. We've covered so much today from the mechanics of humor laughter and the impact of it both on the psychology and physiology we looked at jokes studies of what's funny and what's not the blueprint we looked at how humor can be used in marketing and sales and also how it can potentially be improved uh, in the correlation between its attractiveness and personality traits Janet, I'm I'm really grateful for this conversation. Before we wrap up, any final thoughts on uh, humor and how can people get the most out of it in their everyday life? I would say that, you know, there's many kinds of humor and sometimes humor hurts. People don't want to just live. They want to thrive. And mm. humor is a way to enhance the quality of life. But you have to pay attention to what kind of humor it is how it's impacting other people and this way pay attention to other people more is a good thing. We empathize with them more. It'll affect your decision making, helps you be a better thinker. You have to reflect more on your life, sort of that metacognition. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And, it, you know, humor doesn't just happen. It is a response to things around you as well as a creative activity that feels good. And uh, who, who doesn't want to feel good? I think uh, if you appreciate humor for what it can do in good ways, um, who wouldn't want to practice it? Um, and it doesn't have to take a lot of time to practice, just a little bit each day and not put yourself down when you think, oh, I'm being silly. Uh, there's something wrong with me for laughing at that. No, there's something good for you for laughing at it because it means you're using your brain, you're using your cognitive areas, your social areas, your motor areas, and you're strengthening those connections. And, uh, you know, we all want a healthy brain and it doesn't cost anything. Usually, right? No medicine, no um, uh, sign up for a class. You can just do it on your own. What a beautiful way to end. Pay more attention to yourself as well as to others. And going back to what you said, just be kind. There's nothing wrong in that. 
Janet, thank you so much for uh, spending this time with me, unwrapping and uncovering the complexities behind humor. It's been a pleasure to, to speak with you. And perhaps in a couple of months' time, I'll tell you my results after I practice some of these seven steps. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. It's a labor of love. And consequently, I'm really interested in what you care about as well. Write me a comment and I will reply to you. Also, if you listened with me all the way to the end and found something useful, please feel free to share or subscribe so that you receive notifications when the next episode comes in. Thanks for joining. Speak to you soon in the comments.